What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We're very glad to have you along on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. If you've never heard the program, this is for non-Catholics. If you are a non-Catholic and you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith, you'd love to get that question answered. That is why we are here. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-EWTN. 3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener, Jeff Burson, normally our uh, uh, social media guy, uh, but I believe Ace is handling that for us today, Ace McKay. And uh, if you uh, want to ask us a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Ace will see that and he'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and then uh, off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank are you. you. Are you staying hydrated? Always. This is very important in the the uh, overheated summer that we're having here. I am a hydration machine. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm going to lead off with a very thoughtful email from Lisa. Lisa says, I was raised in a devout Italian Catholic family, but in, my ni- in the 20s, left the church in my 20s. I have been part of a Reformed RCA church for 12 years and raised two children in it. We are very involved, Bible studies, Sunday school, fellowship events, mission work, etc. Yet I learn for the rosary and rhythm of the Catholic Mass. But I feel a part of the church family now, and I know the Bible because of the Reformed church more than I ever did as a Catholic, where I felt as if my presence never really mattered to the church. That's what keeping me from returning my family to the church. So my question, Dr. Anders, what is the position of the Catholic Church on the importance of Bible studies and being a church family with others in the pews? Thanks, Lisa. These are wonderful questions, Lisa, and I really appreciate them, and I, and I really appreciate the, 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 the concrete dilemma that you face. Here's the answer to the question. The Church uh, says in all of her official documents, all of her official teaching, that Catholics should read and study the Bible and that the parish community should be like a second home, that people should go there and they should have friends and they should have support, both spiritual, emotional, sometimes even financial, definitely a human psychological support. And so what you're experiencing in your Reformed Church, that should characterize the experience of the Catholic parish, and that's what the Church teaches. In my experience, and yours also, the ability of Catholic parishes to pull that off uh, varies widely from one parish to another. So you will attend some parishes where you'll find that, you know, there's a ton of Bible studies going on during the week, and there's a real sense of commonality and community and, and support. Others where you feel like a number, right? And, and that, that, that's a fact. I understand it. So there are, 
those of us who work in Catholic ministry, and, and for that matter, I would include the Pope in that number. He kind of works in Catholic ministry, too. Kind of, yeah. Uh, the Pope wrote a document about 10 years ago on evangelism and catechesis and ministry in the Church, in which he called out the problem that you found in your Catholic parish as one of the number one problems facing the Church, a, a kind of overly bureaucratic, officious, alienating parish culture that, uh, that drives people out of communion with Christ in the Catholic Church. The Pope recognizes it. The bishops recognize it. Those of us that work in the trenches of Catholic ministry recognize it. There are, there are some impediments to, uh, to creating solutions to the problem, but there are also ministries that are creatively working to do just that. So I recognize what you're talking about as a problem, um, but so do the Church also recognizes it as mm, a problem, saying yeah. that the priority is on the kind of experience that you have. Now, Right before I came on the air today, I was talking to a Catholic friend of mine who has a very good pastor, and, um, and he, said to his, uh, he said to his pastor friend, he said, look, you know, I want to bring people to Mass, but, uh, but we don't have a good way of onboarding uh, newcomers. You know, we, we don't have a, like a handy-dandy in the back of the pew introduction to the Mass and how to say it manual so people feel kind of lost. And the pastor says... You're absolutely right. That's a major lacuna. We need to fix that. Go write it. You have two weeks. <laughs> you know, and um, uh, and so sometimes you can you can you can be the person that brings the news of the problem, and you may get delegated the the solution to the problem if you have a supportive pastor working with you. You uh, remember our our good friend uh, Dave Vacheres, who absolutely used to be here at the network. He's now with uh, Annunciation Radio out of out of Toledo, one of our important uh, affiliates there. And uh, Dave was talking about one time when someone came to him saying, "We really need a Catholic radio show for young adults," and he said, "Okay, I agree. Get to it. Get to it. Yes, or, as Mother Angelic would say." Get cracking. Get cracking. I, I just love that. So, you know, it's uh, certainly a consideration there. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for your email. A quick question here. This is from Tim Day uh, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Would you please ask Tom and David what source document they had in mind the other day when they referred to social cohesion and social embeddedness? Um, yes. So the document that I was citing, I'm going to pull it up right now while okay. we speak, was Social Networks and Religion, the Role of Congregational Social Embeddedness in Religious Belief and Practice by Samuel Stroop, published in the journal Sociology of Religion, Volume 73, Issue 3, Autumn 2012, Wow, page 273. <laughs> All right. So that's the reference. Right. It's an article in Sociology of Religion by a sociologist named Samuel Stroop. That was the document. Sure. So if uh, TM Day wanted to find that, they could probably do a, a computer search and uh, eventually track it Yes, down. he could find it online someplace or another. There you go. Thanks so much uh, for your question via YouTube. Thank you, Ace, for pointing that out to us. Hey, we've got lines open for you right now. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial 1-205-271-2985. Uh, we will get to the phones in just a moment here. Lines are uh, filling up quickly, so call now if you've got that question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-EWTN. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
Hey, glad you're with us for the Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We have three lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? Maybe you'd like to uh, explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, as our earlier emailer referred to us. Well, uh, we'd love to know about that. 833-288-EWTN. You know, EWTN offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel live every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, right after our great sunrise morning show. Don't miss out. We can send you a link to your email inbox each and every day. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. And we will go uh, right to the phones just as soon as uh, Matt gets a couple of calls screened here, and then we'll get rolling. Again, our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Here's an interesting email from Robert. He says, prior to becoming a Catholic, I offered an erroneous view to a friend that God could be anything to anyone. For example, God could be Jesus to the Christians and Muhammad to the Muslims to save anyone of goodwill. Now, I now know this to be incorrect. I would love to you to articulate the Catholic view of salvation of individuals of other faiths. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So just to clarify why the position you held is not the Catholic position, <clears throat> logically, there is nothing that would prevent God from... Uh, speaking to people in various ways through different people at different times. And in fact, the book of Hebrews says that God has done explicitly that, that in the past God spoke to our forefathers in various ways and in various times. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. And so the Catholic Church does actually hold that God has had different prophets through the ages. Now, uh, but to say that is not to say that everyone whom men call a prophet is in fact a prophet, because there are also false prophets. There are people who claim to speak for God, and some of them may have founded world religions, in fact, that the Catholic Church would not regard as genuine prophets, and we would not use that title to describe them. And uh, so just because somebody has a world religion named after them doesn't mean they fall into that category of someone that God has used in that capacity. And and it's important to attend to what the alleged prophet says, and you'll find that what the alleged prophets or, or gurus or mystics or gods or demigods or bodhisattvas or whatever it might be of other religious traditions often teach things that are very different from what Christ taught, from what biblical revelation teaches, from the Catholic tradition teaches. In which case, if you assert that, well, they're both adequate representations of God's will— then you'd have to hold that God was grossly inconsistent because he could say something was good from one prophet and then declare the same thing evil yeah. from another prophet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biblical position is that God can speak through various people in various means, but the definitive revelation comes through Jesus, and it is a revelation of the love of God, a God who is both reasonable and loving and, um, and uh, who dignifies the human person made in his likeness and image. And that is a unique message, a message unique to the Christian revelation. Now, um, the way the Catholic Church sees the salvation of people in other religious traditions is that they are saved in virtue and by means of the truth that those religions contain and the, and the sincere effort that their adherents make to adhere to that truth for the sake of the love of God and neighbor. So... Um, 
you know, take, for example, uh, the religion of Islam, which the Catholic Church obviously does not agree with the basic uh, tenets of the religion of Islam, um, and, uh, and, and thinks that's incorrect. But it'd be possible for someone who was a Muslim, in theory, uh, to come to believe that God was loving, um, that, uh, that their life needed to be uh, rationally and ethically ordered according to that principle, and to seek in good conscience to love God and love neighbor, and that uh, God could, by his grace, use such efforts uh, to bring that soul to himself. But it would be kind of in spite of, rather than because of, those differentiating, differentiating elements of Islam that would not agree with the Catholic faith. Same thing would go with other religious traditions. Now, what, what's a fun exercise, I enjoy it, is to study world religions and to look for those points of commonality, places where we could say, okay, this, this here looks a bit like some aspect of the gospel, maybe not the whole thing, but it's a part of it, and there's some resonance, there's some correspondence there, and we can agree on that, we can appreciate it, we can encourage that. And that's, in fact, what ecumenism does. It, it looks for those points of commonality, things that we can agree on, and, and, uh, and trust that, you know, God can use those to bring a soul to himself. Now, that doesn't make us indifferent to the question of, uh, of formal religious belief and practice, because we think those differences do matter, and so again, it, it's it's harder to come to the to the the practice of the knowledge of a loving God and to imitate His character if you live in a tradition that denies that God is loving. Yeah, right. That's just, uh, just harder for you to do. So we still want to evangelize, but we recognize that you know God can use those elements uh, that bring people to Himself. Robert, thanks so much for your email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. We begin with Paul in Olympia, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Paul, happy Wednesday to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Yes, um, I've been talking to my brother back and forth. He he was, he was raised Catholic like, like I was, but he's now Baptist, and so we've been kind of going back and forth about different things. And so he sent me the chapter and verse here, uh, Romans nine eleven. Maybe Dr. Anders is familiar with that. Um, I can read it if you want. No, I, know, I know the text. I know the text. Oh, okay. If you can tell me the Catholic interpretation of that, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I appreciate it. So the, 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 you cannot read the book of Romans, you can't read some chapter of Romans in isolation from the complete book. You have to place Romans 9 in the context of Romans 1 to 16. You've got to have the whole thing in your mind, okay? And I would encourage you to do that, to start at page 1, read the entire document, and... Um, and, uh, and understand the, the, the larger context of the book of Romans. What is that larger context of the book of Romans? The larger context is Paul is answering the question, what is the relationship of Gentiles to the Jewish people through Christ? This was a very big issue in his day. Uh, Gentiles who believe in Jesus, do they have to become Jews? Do they have to follow the law of Moses? Do they have to circumcise themselves? Do they have to follow the laws of Kashrut, all the dietary restrictions, and the purity laws? There were those in the infant church that thought the answer to that question was yes. Paul took a different point of view, which eventually was recognized as the orthodox perspective, that you do not have to become a practicing Jew to be associated with the God of Abraham through the person of Christ. You can do that through faith. And so um, he, Paul talks about the election of Israel, the calling of Israel, and the poor purpose of the calling of Israel. And Israel was called, according to Paul, Abraham was called, his progeny were called, so that through them the world could be blessed. Through the people of God, the Messiah would be born and could be a light to all nations. And so the, the idea of election 
And what is the role of the Jewish people in the outworking of God's plan and promises is a major factor. Okay, if Gentiles don't have to become Jews, why then are there Jews? Why did God call Abraham? Why did God call the Jewish people? And, and Paul recognizes that many Jews in his own day did not believe in Jesus. And he says, yep, that's a problem. But the promises and the call of God are irrevocable, and God still has a plan for his chosen people, meaning the children of Abraham. And that continues to be the church's position today, right? And uh, we'll leave to God how he's going to work that out. Okay, we're not going to handicap God and say how that has to happen and what it has to look like, but they still have a role to play in the, in the redemption of the, of the world. And so all this uh, election language that you find, and the issue of God's sovereign choice and so forth, that you find in Romans 9 to 11... A lot of Baptists, a lot of Reformed and Calvinist uh, Christians want to act like this is about particularly concerned with the salvation of individual souls. You know, that uh, the Calvinist position is that God plans from before all of eternity to pick specific individuals out without regard to their merits or anything that they've done or not done and, and predestine them for eternal hell. Like that the, the, the point of, a major point of creation is to create souls to damn Oof. and that God uh, does that, irrespective of any consideration of their works or merits, <clears throat> although they'll eventually be punished for their bad works, but he's set them up to fail so that he can show his wrath in them. And there ain't nothing you can do about it because humans don't have free will. And that's the, that's the hardcore Calvinist position. It's a position that Luther defended in his book, The Bondage of the Will. Uh, it's a position that many fundamentalist Baptists also take. And uh, there, there is a position in Catholic theology that allows for a doctrine of personal predestination um, where God elects to give grace to some soul that will bring him to salvation and not to another, but they, the Catholics don't accept the idea of a double predestination, a predestination to damnation, and there's room for talking about why God would give grace to one person versus another. It doesn't necessarily have to be utterly inscrutable the way the Catholic, I mean, the way the Baptist would hold or the way the Calvinist would hold. But personally, I think a better way to read the text is to go back to the questions that Paul actually asks about the relationship of people groups. And the, the primary focus of election in Scripture is not on, you know, some individual soul elected to salvation or damnation, so much as it is the election of uh, of of uh, of groups, the election of families, the elections of a corporate a unit, like being a Gentile or being a Jew, and election is always for the sake of salvation. So God elects Abraham. This is like the premier example of election, but not for His own sake alone, but so that He can be a blessing to the world. God elects Christ. He elected the humanity of Christ to, for the incarnation, but again, not for the salvation of Christ's human soul, but for the salvation of the world. And in the same way, God, we can't talk about God electing Christians and electing the church, but to what end? So that we can be the light of the nations. We can be the light of the world, the salt uh, and light that brings uh, blessing to the entire planet, right? It's an election to service. It's an election to love. It's an election uh, to, to blessing, not an election that condemns one soul to hell without any possibility of repentance. 
Well, we do hope that's helpful for you, Paul. Thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Looks like three lines open here at 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Uh, Matt got a call just a few moments ago from uh, someone who wanted to know if we remembered the name of that book that we talked about yesterday about keeping your kids in the church. And that book is called Always a Catholic by Father Sebastian Walsh, W-A-L-S-H-E. It's available from EWTNRC.com. Hope that's helpful for you. Let's go now to Billy, a first-time caller in Kalamazoo, listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Hello, Billy. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I was kind of wanting to know, uh, with the Catholics, why do you need Jesus and why do you need God if you pray to that guy in the box to forgive you of your sins? And then also, too, you have the Pope as the mediator, and you pray to all these other saints, and we know that Jesus is the mediator. No one else is. Okay, thanks, Billy. I'm going to answer that at some length, but I'd like to ask you a question initially. Uh, when you get sick, do you go to the doctor? What do you mean? I mean, like, have you ever been to a doctor? Yeah. Okay. Can't God heal you directly? If you want to do, yes. Sure, absolutely. God could heal you directly without the mediation of a doctor. But hasn't God set up the physical world such that he works through through instruments, through secondary causes? But that's the physical world, not the spiritual world. Okay, <laughs> granted, granted, granted. All right, I grant you, that's the physical world. All right. Does he also work the same way in the spiritual world? Now, here's where I want to jump in and, and make some observations about sacred scripture and the Christian faith. Uh, the Bible absolutely says that God works that way. So St. Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, says that we have become Christ's uh, co-laborers as if God were making his appeal through us. Uh, Jesus said to the apostles, go into all nations and make disciples. Teach them everything I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Protestants call that text the Great Commission. Catholics use different terminology, but the idea is that Christ works through mediators. He sends people in his name to teach, to govern, to sanctify, to baptize, and to pronounce judgment. If anyone sins, go to him privately. If he doesn't listen to you, take another. If he doesn't listen to that fellow, take him to the church. This is Matthew 18. If he doesn't listen to the church, kick him out like a tax collector or a sinner and have nothing to do with him. Excommunicate him. All right, that, that's, that's a mediated role of judgment. And, and reconciliation and healing that Christ has established, teaching, ruling, sanctifying, all these things Christ has, has delegated to those that speak in his name. John chapter 20, Christ says to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. Even up into the forgiveness of sins, Christ has delegated that to secondary causes, to instruments, to people who speak in his name. Now, just like physical healing, of course God can forgive you directly, and does. Of course God can save you without human mediation, and sometimes does. But he didn't set up the spiritual world to function like that normatively, any more than he did the physical world, that the principle of mediation and instrumental causes and secondary causes is the way God governs all of reality, including our spiritual lives. Uh, I mean, I imagine that you probably learned the Christian faith 
you know, from your mother, from your father, from your Sunday school teacher, from your pastor. I don't think you probably got it by direct revelation downloaded immediately into your brain from heaven, right? Uh, so at least at that level, you're recognizing a form of mediation. I mean, Paul says the heavens declare the glory of God. Even the physical creation is a mediator of God's being and presence and glory and the moral law, right? And Christ himself specifically enjoins us to make use of these means. Billy, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, we'll talk with Alex in Brooklyn. A couple lines open for you right now. If you call right now, hopefully we can get you on today's show. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, WTOA 101.3 FM in Albany, Georgia, celebrating their seventh year with EWTN. Congratulations to everyone at St. Teresa's Catholic Church in Albany from all of us here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Alex in Brooklyn listening on uh, Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Alex. What's on your mind today? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. um, my close friends are getting married later this year, and the uh, he is not a practicing Catholic, and uh, neither is she, but she's been baptized and has all three sacraments, and he has just been baptized. My question is, how does that ceremony in the Church, uh, how does that ceremony happen? Because they plan on getting married in a church, Catholic Church, and how can I say something to them without me looking like I'm judging them? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, if you are getting married, if one is getting married in a Catholic church, they should, under normal circumstances, be required to undergo some form of marriage preparation, some kind of marriage prep. They will have to meet with a priest or a deacon or the priest's a delegate who will instruct them in the Catholic faith and ask about their mode of life. So um, if the priest in that parish is doing what he is supposed to be doing, they will receive that instruction, and it need not come from you. Uh, there's a principle in moral theology of when do, you, when do you admonish the sinner, and one of the criteria is I'm the best person to do the job. In this instance, the best person to do the job is the priest who's marrying them. He, he, that, is his, that is literally his job. He has been, he's been ordered by the church to do this. So, you know, you could ask your friend, hey, I'm curious. You know, generally when people get married in the Catholic Church, they have to have some marriage prep. Uh, do you guys get any marriage prep with the priest? I'm just kind of wondering what they said to you. You know, don't tell me if you don't want to. I'm just kind of curious to see what they would do in your case and just see what comes back. And, uh, and hopefully the priest will do his due diligence. Yeah. Alex, thanks so much for your call and for your caring concern for your friends there. Here is um, Matt now. Matt is in uh, Columbus, listening on the uh, blowtorch there, St. Gabriel Radio. I, you know, let me just explain. I call it the blowtorch because they have an Im immense signal covering a big chunk of central Ohio. So that's why we call them the blowtorch. We love St. Gabriel Radio, and uh, we love you too, Matt. What's on your mind today? You know, I was going to ask you why you say that all the time. Now you know. Now you know. 
Dr. Anders, I wanted to ask if you could uh, explain what people mean about the ordinary form of the mass when they say that it's valid but illicit. Like, I, I don't understand that. I don't agree with it. But if you could explain where that comes from and also sure. if there's any hypothetical situation where the church could approve an illicit, you know, like that seems like a contradiction to me, but if that's even possible. Right. Appreciate it. <clears throat> so the distinction between validity and laseity is that a valid sacrament works. It does the things that a sacrament is meant to do. An illicit sacrament is one that may or may not be valid, but you're not authorized to perform. Mm. So let me give you an example. Um, you can have a validly ordained priest who, uh, by the sacrament of holy orders, has the ability to consecrate the Eucharist but has been ordered by his bishop not to. If he, 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 if he says the words with the proper intent over valid matter, he will, in fact, consecrate the Eucharist, but he'll do so in disobedience to his bishop. And so it would be valid, would be real host, real Eucharist, real consecrated matter, but he did it illegally, and so that would be wrong of him to do. There are some sacraments that have to be licit in order to be valid. Well, there's one, right? And that is uh, the sacrament of penance, absolution. A priest cannot validly sacri uh, celebrate the sacrament of penance if he does not licitly celebrate the sacrament of penance, because penance is tied specifically to the priest's jurisdiction. And it'd be sort of like, you know, a, um, you know if imagine a judge who was elected to serve in the municipal court in one county who runs to a neighboring state and attempts to pronounce judgment in a foreign court. Um, his judgment would, it, it would have no legal force. It would be, it would be illicit and, and invalid. Yeah. And because there is that aspect to the confessional in that there is a, there is a, there is a juridical element to it, in order to be valid, it must also be illicit. But some sacraments can be valid and not be licit. Now, um, I, I consider it a, an absolutely lunatic position to take. Absolutely lunatic. Looney tunes. But there are those that claim that the Novus Ordo Mass, the Mass of the Roman Rite, that is the normal rite, the ordinary rite of the Church, is valid but not licit. And their, their argument is that Pope Paul VI did not have the authority to authorize a revised rite of the Mass. And they have, pedant, in my judgment, pedantic arguments to back that up. Um, I, I think that that is a, a, just an absolutely nincompoop argument. And I don't have to be a canonist or a liturgist to step back and look at it from the 50,000-foot point of view. And, and when you get with sort of radical traditionalists, they want to talk to you all day long about the jot and tittle of the law, and they miss the forest for the trees, in my judgment. Mm -hmm. All right, and here's my sort of basic philosophical answer to this. St. Augustine dealt with a group like this in the 4th century in North Africa called the Donatists, and they also had a pedantic argument about why, why they were only the real church, and everybody else was, you know, a heretic or a schismatic and going to hell. 
And Augustine's response was, you can't possibly be the Catholic Church because you're just in North Africa. <laughs> and the Catholic Church is, by definition, universal. Yeah. And the verdict of the whole world is conclusive. That was his famous phrase, right? Um, Securus uh, judicat verbum terrorum. I mean, uh, ter uh, got that wrong. I'll come back to it. Orbis terrorum, sorry. And, um, uh, and so my position is, you know, when the Pope... And all the bishops throughout the world concur on a on a uh, liturgical or juridical regime within the church. It's a pretty good signal that that you know the nerdy guy with his home liturgy guide <laughs> is is not the voice of Almighty God, right? It's just not. And it reminds me of a conversation I had one time with my father from a completely different domain. My dad had an LLM in tax law from, of all places, Georgetown University. and went to a Jesuit wow. law school, believe it or not. Okay. And, um, and he practiced transactional law, but he did some tax work too. And he knew tax law. And, uh, and uh, he had a friend one time that came to him with some scheme um, to avoid paying taxes. And uh, you know, if you he he had all he had the argument down jot and tittle with uh, he had all the texts and he had the case law and he had it all worked out where he didn't know any money. And uh, my dad told me he says I've seen this kind of thing before, and um, and and the court doesn't care about your fine legal reasoning. They're going to go right to the bottom line and say the substance of this is you're trying to avoid your obligation to pay taxes and we're not going to pay any attention to your pedantic nonsense, right? Like not even bother with it, and uh, and like there is that kind of small-minded, pedantic attention to detail that thinks if I can work out on paper in a system something that seems like a lock-solid argument to me, then the rest of the world must necessarily bow down to my to my little logical reasoning, and you find these people there. You find it in conspiracy theories. You find it in tax evaders. You find it in. Um, uh, hard right liturgical traditionalists, but the spirit is the same thing, which is that I'm I'm trying to build my little my little logic fortress, uh, where <laughs> I alone am king, yeah. and everybody else has to do what I say. Yeah, uh, Matt, is that helpful for you? Uh, yeah, I mean that's that, that's very much along the lines of what I was thinking, just worded a lot more eloquently. So thank you very much. Appreciate you. your call, Matt. It is a call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, we have time for a couple more uh, calls if you call right now, 833-288-EWTN. We can hopefully get you on today, 833-288-3986. Hey, be sure to join us for the Catholic Sphere that's coming up Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern. This week, Doug Keck and a panel of theologians examine why, examining the tough talk that we find in the Scriptures. Learn why Jesus warned the that following him will not be easy, and what we must do to earn our place alongside him in heaven. Very important uh, program. I can't think of a more important program. The Catholic Sphere, this Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Well, we're going to stay in Columbus, Ohio, now talking with Andrew, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Andrew, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, my question has to do with the Alexandrian document from June 7th. And within that document, it seems to suppose that the papacy uh, was not only promulgated, I think, by certain Catholic orders, but as well as certain 
forgeries, such as the donation of Constantine. And the bigger question comes from the end of that document, the conclusion statement, 5.1, says that the Church is not to be understood as a pyramid with a primate at the top. And with this entire document um, basically almost saying how history has promulgated this idea of the papacy, how do we make light of that as Catholics if a Vatican-approved document says that it's not to be understood the current structure the way it is? Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, a couple things. One, I have not yet read the Alexandrian Statement, so I really can't pronounce on it w- at all because I haven't read it. Okay. Um, but I trust that it is very nuanced, and you have quoted a, a text, obviously out of context, and uh, and I and I don't have that larger context, and so anything I say really is not going to be is not going to be sufficient. Uh, secondly, um, there. There is, there is a, there is definite truth in the way, even the quote you've given me, in the way in the church's self understanding with reference to this quote, in, in that the pope is not a CEO of a corporation, and uh, and that that's kind of the that's the metaphor that I'm going to use to capture the image that I think is being critiqued here, even though they don't use that language. It's it's, it's useful and it's one that people can relate to. The pope is not a CEO of an organization. And the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, doesn't view him that way. Um, and in particular, acknowledges the genuine autonomy of bishops over their own diocese. And their relationship to the Pope is one of communion. Now, there's authority to be sure as well. And, and the, the difference between the Catholic and the Orthodox has to do with the question of the Pope's universal jurisdiction. But there's a, a real respect for the autonomy of individual dioceses and individual bishops and uh, above and beyond that, there's, a, there's an added layer of deference when it comes to rights within the Church, R-I-T-E-S, and, um, and the, the sui juris churches of the East. Uh, you know, there are, there are interventions in the internal life of those communities that the Pope has never made and will never make that he would not hesitate to make within his own right. The things that the Pope will do in the Roman right, which is his own right, that he's never going to do in an Eastern Rite Church, one that's in full communion with Rome. Even less would he attempt to do something like that among the Orthodox. Um, and so, uh, is the Church a hierarchy? Yes. Is the Pope the top of the hierarchy? Yes. But if you conceive that hierarchy, you know, on the model of a corporation with the Pope as operating as CEO, whose, whose jurisdiction must necessarily be operated at every level of that hierarchy, or at least potentially so, then you really misunderstand the way the church understands its identity function uh, at, at base as a kind of communion. Okay, Andrew, thanks so much. For I, your I would call. also add. Yes. You, you might find I wrote an article a number of years ago. It's gosh, it's been eleven years now. I can't believe that. Wow. Um, uh, at the Call to Communion website, uh, titled Archbishop Minorath on Rome, the Papacy, and the East. Okay. And it addresses. Something like the quote that you raised, mm. but in the mouth of a of a of a um, of a Roman of a of a Latin prelate, namely our, a, a certain Archbishop Minorath, and how to understand that and contextualize it in the scope of uh, of Catholic history. You might you might find that helpful. Calledcommunion.com, the article Archbishop Minorath on Rome, the Papacy in the East by by me, David Andrews. But I'm you know you've you've 
put me in mind of reading this document, so I'm going to go back and read it and talk about it with my uh, Byzantine friends. Better get to it. Andrew, again, that website, calledtocommunion.com. Look for the article about uh, the archbishop there uh, written by Dr. David Anders. Called to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, uh, Eden is watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Eden says, how do we know when people become saints? Right. So uh, the, the easiest way is to go to heaven. That'd be the, the quickest, easiest way to find out who's a saint. Get up there and look around. Yeah. All right. Um, some saints, and a very small minority of saints, are formally recognized by the Church as saints mm-hmm. in this life. Well, I mean, they're not in this life, but we who still are in this life hear these formal declarations through the process of canonization. Uh, but the Church can't canonize everybody who's in heaven. We don't know everybody who's in heaven, so the Church canonizes a few standout individuals for their exemplary lives, and we can be have certainty about that. Uh, sometimes you may know someone that your bishop doesn't know, the pope doesn't know. This is not someone who's ever going to be, uh, their cause is never going to be opened with the Vatican. They'll never be formally declared a saint. But you know this individual to have been someone of really heroic charity and fidelity to the church. Yeah. And if in your private opinion, this man is or woman is is overwhelmingly likely to have been a saint or something like you know, if Sally's not a saint, nobody is. And we've all met someone like that <laughs> sure, in our life, right? Sure, You are perfectly free to hold that judgment and even to ask for their intercession when they die, right? You know, yeah. I mean, the only thing that we won't do as the Church is that individual is not going to receive a kind of public cult in the Church. They're not going to be added to the Church's calendar and have a feast day in their honor and that sort of thing. But there's nothing stopping you from holding them in that regard, um, and in fact, that, that's the way canonizations used to happen. Like in the early church and early Middle Ages, they, they were, it was just by popular acclaim. Wow. And it would sort of filter up, you know, to the top, and eventually they'd become universalized. And, um, and uh, I remember reading, when I was a student of, uh, of uh, medieval popular piety, you would have cases of, of uh, celebrated local hermits. You know, some guy lives at the edge of town in a cave and spends all his life in prayer, and because there was such an interest in the devotion to relics, when, uh, you know, when, when Hermit John was getting a little bit advanced in age, the town would post guard around his hermitage because if he died in the night and nobody knew, the danger was somebody from a neighboring village was going to come rip off the body. Ooh. <laughs> so they would have, they'd have his relics. Yeah. The, the town people, no, buddy, this is our hermit. You go get your own hermit. <laughs> you know, it. That's great. Appreciate that. Uh, Eden, thanks so much for your question via Facebook this afternoon. Interesting email here from John. Why does the Catholic Church apparently restrict intercessional miracles for sainthood to cures of an individual's disease or infirmity? Granted, our Lord's miracles, 27 or so, involved healing the sick, infirm, even raising the dead to life. He also performed miracles that fed thousands of people, delivered miraculous fish catches on several occasions, and did his U.S. Coast Guard duty, so to speak, by stilling a storm and rescuing those in peril on the sea. His first miracle was transforming water into wine, not healing anyone. Any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. So, first of all, if uh, let's say that a saint walks on water. Okay. Well, let me rephrase. Let's say a practicing Catholic walks on water. From the Church's point of view, 
that doesn't make the canonization decision easier. It makes it harder. Mm. If during their lifetime they perform wonders, then the church has to determine what is the source of those wonders. They don't automatically assume that they're divine. Oh, okay. Right? So a, a person whose life is marked by strange visions and experiences, that, that's actually a harder case for canonization because you've got to go through every one of those cases and make sure they don't offend against Catholic faith or morals, that they're not demonic in origin or something like that. Um, so the, the miracles that we're looking at for canonization, they have to be post-mortem miracles, have to be miracles that the saint performs after he's dead in heaven by the power of his, his or her intercession. Now, um, as a practical matter, those tend to be healings. Uh, but I don't personally, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't personally know of anything that would prevent another kind of miracle from entering into consideration. So let's say, for example, that, you know, uh, your loved one dies, and you pray for a saint's intercession for a resurrection from the dead, and your loved one gets up and walks away. I, I definitely think that would go into the registers as, you know, under consideration for a miracle. It, this, that's just not the typical way it happens. Similarly, you know, I suppose if you had, um, you know, if you had five loaves and 50,000 people uh, in some refugee camp and wherever, um, and, uh, and you prayed for the intercession of some saint in heaven, and the next thing you know, boom, you've got enough to feed everybody, yeah, I think that would go on the register. But again, that's just, it's just usually healings that get reported. Sure. And we appreciate that. Uh, John, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Colin who says, my fiancé used to attend Baptist church, but she has fallen in love with the Catholic faith. Her mother is Southern Baptist and has been, opposed, has been opposed to this. She has stated that Christ did not establish the church on St. Peter, insisting Christ established the church on himself. She has also said baptism is not necessary for salvation, that Christ could not possibly be present in the Eucharist, and that it's just a memorial meal. What would you guys advise me to do in this situation? Right. Thank you so much. So this is the, the fellow's fiance. is that what he said? Yes. All right, yes. so this is his future mother-in-law. Yeah. Okay. So um, there is the theological answer to her objections. Then there is the son-in-law answer to the cantankerous mother-in-law. <laughs> All right. They may not be the same answer, meaning you, you, you can give a sound theological answer to every one of her objections. Um. My my first piece of advice to you is focus on the relationship first, because if you marry this girl, you're going to have to live with her mother for a long time. Yep. And depending on her disposition, she may not be open to reason. All right. So that's number one. And expect a long haul on this thing. When it comes to having the conversation, if you're ever allowed to have it, um, let's see. Uh, the first question was, Jesus did not establish the church on the rock of St. Peter. Well, he said he did. Matthew 16, 18. Sure did. You are Peter, and on this rock I build my church. Yeah. And it is. it takes the most tortured exegesis for him to, to interpret that as meaning, you are Peter, and I'm going to build the church on myself. Like, that's just not what the text says. And, right. and Baptist interpreters agree. Don Carson, who teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a very anti-Catholic man, uh, in his articles on St. Peter, acknowledges that Peter is the rock in Matthew's Gospel. He doesn't draw the other conclusions about the Catholic faith, but he concedes, look, exegetically, that's just what you have to conclude. Um, uh, Jesus is not in the Eucharist. Well, again, he says he is. Uh, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life. This is my body. This is the chalice of the new covenant in my blood. I mean, Christ definitely says these things. 
and 2,000 years of Christian history has read them in their most straightforward sense and always taken that to be the position. So, I mean, these are just bare assertions that she's making out of dogmatic attachment to her own tradition, certainly not to the teaching of the Bible or sacred scripture. Now, you know, the real slam dunk with Baptist folks, in my judgment, is rather than debate this or that point of Catholic doctrine, I prefer to go right to the foundational issue of the Bible itself and ask my Baptist friends, do you think that Jesus gave us a rule of faith? Did Jesus give us an authoritative means of handing on the Christian tradition? Because everything in their argument uh, supposes that Jesus did, and the provision that Christ made was sacred scripture, right? So put the question explicitly, did Christ give us a means to know the faith? When they'll say, well, yeah, sure, of course, the Bible. Okay, where does Jesus say that? The Bible, and it doesn't mean some quote from Isaiah, the Bible is a, as a compilation of 66 books, if you're a Protestant. Where did Jesus ever authorize this 66-book list of canonical scriptures as the go-to place to determine the contents of Christian faith? And the answer to the question is nowhere. Not Christ, not the apostles, not the prophets. God himself never said that this Bible that you're quoting is, in fact, the rule of faith for the church. Christ gave a different rule of faith. He said to the apostles, go into all nations, make disciples, teach what I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Christ established the apostolic office to the end of the age as the rule of faith for the church. So, you know, your your whole religion is founded on a logical inconsistency and incoherence. But probably not a good idea. Not a good to way to leave that. with the mother-in-law. No, not a good way to leave with the mother-in-law. We're going to close with this question, and uh, thank you, Colin, for your uh, email. Here's one now from Richard. I have read mixed opinions on hypnosis by various theologians. What is Dr. David Anders' view? Well, uh, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist, and I would ultimately defer to someone like Dr. Ray or Dr. Popcheck, who do have shows on this network and have much more experience and knowledge of these things. Um, you know, I don't know immediately anything that would count against any genuine therapeutic intervention that can help relieve suffering. Um, so hypnosis, as far as I know, puts you in a very suggestible state. Um, and my, my only caution is be cautious about to whom you make yourself suggestible. Caveat emptor. Yep. All right. Very good. And uh, thank you so much for your email as well. Got to a whole bunch of calls, a whole bunch of emails, questions from Facebook and YouTube. That's what we do each and every Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, you can hear the encore of this program today at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast, or check out the podcast at EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.